0: The Gospel lesson is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and I will be reading verses 1 through 9. Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. This is the Gospel of Christ. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' He called a little child and had him stand among them." And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, you become like little children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. The word of the Lord. Today I'm preaching on a topic and I find preaching on a topic more difficult than preaching from a specific text of Scripture. Some types of topics, of course, are easier to preach than others. I preached a series of topics on the seven deadly sins. Actually, they ended up being nine deadly sins. And those were relatively easy as a topic to preach from Scripture because you could find nice little scholars call pericopes or nice little texts that are coherent in themselves and proceed to preach from that. But I'm preaching on a topic today that is difficult to find just one text that gives enough to let it furnish as a standalone text. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, there are many texts on this where the matter I'm preaching on is touched upon. But the most important thing is the reason that it's difficult to tie my topic to a specific text is because it's so much assumed to be the case that even those by the light of nature would not disagree. It's, if you will, part of the warp and woof of the Scriptures. From the beginning to the end. And so we'll have to make some theological deductions from certain portions of the scripture. My topic today is life. Life in the womb and outside of the womb. Human life. The month of January is a month that is quite significant. Of course, it is... Always, every four years, the, the month in which the inauguration of the president that was elected takes place. It is Black History Month, and it is also a day in which we remember the human rights advancement under Martin Luther King Jr. But in 1973, it is also true that we remember occasion in which the US Supreme Court took out of the hands of the states and passed a law that made abortion legal in every state so that it's the law of the land. And uh, what is more important, and almost everyone agrees, including those who are for abortion, is that there is no constitutional authority for this. It was just simply done. Now, the states had the right to do that, and they were doing it systematically throughout. But the U.S. government needs constitutional authority to do things. But that has become a joke in almost every area of life, hasn't it? Nonetheless, The pro life movement from that time on till this has grown stronger and stronger. You will hear some on the left say that while we're for abortion, we want it to be rare. Do not believe that. Do not believe that at all. It's not the case. Abortions actually have become somewhat rarer, though there are 54 million abortions in this country alone since 1973. But don't believe that, that we want it to be rare. Because nothing from that quarter ever comes to reduce the number. It always comes from the pro-life movement, putting on pressure. Always, always. They may point to statistics to show that their policies have decreased the number each year, but they have usurped, if you will, the labors of another. It's like a parasite. So my topic today is life, and I don't want it to confine just to life in the womb, though it'll be significant and the main part, but life. Your life and my life. And if we are talked about your life and my life, we must talk about God, who is the giver and taker of life. In the beginning, the scripture says God created. And all through that passage, all the way up through the three chapters in Genesis, you see the creative activity of God. Now you will sometimes hear me say and others say that since we are in the image of God, we are little creators. Well, there is a sense in which this is totally untrue. No one is in a position to create like God does in Genesis. The triune God calls out of nothing something through his word by divine fiat. He brings it into being. No human being has that capacity. We can tinker and make things from things that exist. We can improve things that are here. We can take care of ourselves. And in the sense that someone might come up with a special invention like Thomas Edison and the electric light bulb, we say they are creators. But not really, not in the sense of God. God then has created a world which he is Lord over. And this is terribly important for life. He is the author of life and he is the finisher of life, he is the giver of life and he is the taker of life. And so the first thing that we must establish, and it is a theological deduction, that life in all of its forms, and particularly human life, since human life is in the image of God, comes from God, and he is the Lord of life. He is a God who creates. All Christians, I hope, accept this. And many non-Christians do also. We recognize that this life is precious from its very beginning and inception all the way through till its end. So what I'm saying today has more to do than with just life in the womb. It has to do with the end of life, which is also much under a threat today. Or life that people do not consider valuable is under threat today. In other words, life is under threat from conception to the grave from what I later will call a culture of death. At every stage, make no mistake, it's total. They're not just concerned about developing life, but ending life and life that does not meet their criteria for quality of life. Now, I want to string together a few verses, and I have to do this. I can't take just one. But life in the womb is most precious, according to the Scriptures. Passage from Jeremiah was read to you. And I want you to notice how Jeremiah looks at his life as a prophet of God. God speaks to him and says, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. In other words, God knows life in the womb and is aware of it. It's development. I also had that passage from the Apostle Paul read. He's a passage just talking about his apostolicship. He's not talking about anything else as such. But then he makes a wonderful assumption right in the midst of this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth, and then he goes on to say, and called me by his grace. Now I want you to notice the assumption in both those passages. That in the womb and from birth, God is Lord over life. Let me go further in some other passages of Scripture, in Psalm 22, verse 9. And I want you to notice this verse, and you don't have to turn there. You probably can't keep up. But Psalm 22, 9. The psalmist says, yet you brought me out of the womb. And notice the language. I'll use this in Sunday school when I teach on baptism. Baptism. Today, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. Isn't that amazing? In the very fabric of scripture, scripture, there is a conception that human life, in particular, is special and is from God, from its conception, all the way to the end. We read that passage from Matthew. (coughs) Matthew, there, of course, is talking about new infant believers. They're probably adults. But he uses an illustration from a small child. Microne is the Greek word a little small child, a little one. And there are two or three things to notice about that passage. It's not only an offense to offend a brand new Christian. As mature Christians, we have an obligation to be especially sensitive to the weak. But that could not be true if the illustration he's using is not true also. That a small child's life is terribly precious, and whoever offends or leads a small child away, is worthy of the wrath and judgment of God. Secondly, notice that the small child can, just like the psalmist from the mother's breast, believe, can be in the kingdom. It's not just through an adult conversion. Now these passages are pretty powerful when you begin to look at them and to see them. And I want to look at Psalm 139, which speaks to this, and here is a passage that I want to read. And if you want to turn to it, you can. Psalm 139 is a wonderful passage, and it tells us a great deal of how the biblical world sees things. The psalmist in this case is said to be David the king. And it is a psalm that was sung. But I want you to look it through. In this psalm throughout, you can see many verses. But in particular, I want to focus on verses 13 through 16. And notice the words of the psalmist. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. My frame was not hidden from you, When I was made in the secret place, and the secret place here is the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, the depths of the earth, again, here uh, happens to be the womb. they are figures of speech. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And if you believe in God's providence and ordering of your life, which I do. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What a magnificent passage. God is not absent from anything that we do from conception to the end while we have life and breath upon this earth. What does all this add up to? It is obvious that the biblical writers from the beginning to end believe that life is most precious. It is precious in the womb. It is precious, it's precious when it's very small. In fact, Job made a great statement about life. And he says this, naked, I came from my mother's womb And naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So life in the biblical pattern comes from God. And the natural assumption is that if he created it then he is Lord over it and nobody else. children in particular have a strongly developed I mean Christians have a strongly developed view of life I've studied world religions for many 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 years and uh, you will find in some religions a great deference for life particularly for a bug or anything else and you'll say hmm boy there's real reverence for life the problem is that they make not much distinction between the bug and the human being because of the transmigration of souls it is only in the Christian tradition the Judeo-Christian tradition that you have a real focus upon the value of human life it's unique And this was by divine revelation. That's why you find in the command in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that if you shed a man's blood or a person's woman, then by man shall your blood be shed, meaning that it's a capital offense to take someone's life. That's God's prerogative, not yours. God's prerogative, Dr. Kevorkian became odious to so many people because he seemed to have placed himself, in fact, he did, in that position. And what is interesting is, while he was advocating and no doubt propagandizing people to let him take their life or give them the means to do so, he would not do so at the end of his own life. Now these people are rife with double standards. They're willing to take your life. But their life, you see, is more important than your life. Psalm seventy two fourteen says a wonderful thing. Speaking about his people, God says he will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. Now that's the main part of the sermon. (coughs) I hope you will agree with me that the scriptures are clear. But there is a culture of death at work in this world. There is a culture of death in the world that we usurp the divine prerogatives. And only some who are gifted and has special insight, elite enough in their training and their superior understanding to try to usurp the place of God and determine, even in the womb, who should live and who should not. Even in life, whether your life is worth saving or not. At the end of life, whether there should be procedures allowed you or not. Now, what I discover among these is that there's no fear of God upon these hearts. In many cases, they believe themselves the last court of judgment upon all such matters. Now, notice that. I didn't say they believe themselves to be God. Of course, it amounts to that. But there are some self-appointed people, and in some cases governments, have appointed certain people to be the last court of judgment upon life and death. That is the world we now live in. And let me give you some examples. Have you ever heard of David Attenborough? He's a British polymath. He dabbles in a lot of things. He he's a television personality. He has great standing in science and the arts. He's an older man. He also belongs to a group called uh, Optimum Population Trust. Now, what David Attenborough and people like him and others, such as George Soros or Professor Singer down at Princeton, they believe that people in this world are the enemies of the planet. They need to control population. They want to treat people, if you will, like cattle. They, they, they believe that the herd needs to be thinned. Think of that kind of concept to human beings. We do thin deer herds, but they're not made in the image of God. And we only do that out of necessity for reverence for life, greater life. But David Attenborough believes you are the problem. Here is what he said. Humans are a plague on the earth that need to be controlled by limiting growth of population. Now, he wasn't the first. Let me give you another name of a person who is squarely set in the middle of the culture of death. Paul Ehrlichman, or Ehrlich, Ehrlich, I think is his name, not Ehrlichman. That was a politician, wasn't it? Paul Ehrlich. He's the one who coined the term population bomb, written over 40 years ago. He says, we must control the number of children that are born. We can't allow these families to go on with four and five children or more. They're going to ruin the planet. The planet cannot sustain such. And spawned from this was the euthanasia movement, which has legal standing in some countries in Europe and in some cases states in the U.S., such as Oregon. That some lives at the end, since the quality is reduced, are not as valuable as those lives in the middle of life. They would have put together death, I suppose, a Stravinsky, a great musician who lived well into his 90s, creating the greatest music the world's practically ever heard at the end of his life, and others. Now, in truth, they'd probably let them live, but they won't let you live. Now, I am not getting political, but I'm going to make a political statement here because it's part of the culture of death. The Affordable Care Act is part of the culture of death. Christians have been railing against the Affordable Care Act because it is an attack upon religious liberty and our constitutional rights, and they are absolutely correct. And that part will be defeated in the courts. You don't have to worry too much about that. It's so blatant. And there must be a hundred lawsuits already. And there's some preliminary decisions that will defeat that part. But that still does not eliminate aspects of the Affordable Care Act that are an attack upon life. Just suppose for a moment that you have a body of physicians prioritize care for the whole country and they do that for the government and then you turn it over to bureaucrats who are going to follow those guidelines and you want to stay within a budget And there's no way to get outside of that because it's gonna be applied to the whole country. And furthermore, there may be a penalty if you try to do it privately. And they say when you get to be 65 years of age, you have so little time left, open-heart surgery is not feasible. Even though my father had seven bypass surgery at 84, and he's lived the best 13 years after that of his life, he said. Still living. A great blessing to his family and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But you see, that doesn't register. Sarah Palin called them death panels, and she was laughed off TV. But how else can you explain it if that comes to pass? And it seems the structures are in place. Now, I'm speculating here a bit because this whole care act doesn't come into effect until next year. But we keep finding bit, piece, bit, piece, on and on, here and there, where it's not what we thought it was because nobody read the 2,500 pages or so which is going to produce several hundred thousands of regulations. Who can read that much? It's all in the hands of bureaucrats. But believe me, they do not have Christian values. It's not built into it. Much of the environmental movement is also part of the culture of death. I already suggested in some that I've mentioned that you are the problem. And you're hurting this planet. You are a menace to the environment. And I don't have time to say much on that. Now the question is, what do we do about this? I don't want to frustrate everyone by laying out this and painting a dark scenario. In fact, I'm much more optimistic than I've preached today about this whole thing. Here's what you can do. Let's start with the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ must preach and teach life and against the culture of death. We are a school of Christ, and every believing church must stand up for life that is precious in all of its forms, but in particular human life. Secondly, you have the rights of citizenship. Are you concerned about this? Well, then you should be involved with a group, as a citizen, with other people of like mind, that some of them may not be Christians. But there are many like-minded people who believe that this is just simply against nature, against common sense and reason. And the third thing you can do is pray. Now I'm going to tell you about a woman as I close, that you can emulate. Any of you ever, and some of you may have heard of Nellie Gray. Any of you ever heard of that woman? Lift your hand if you have. Nellie Gray. She died six months ago. They found her dead in her Washington, D.C. apartment, 88 years old. She's the one that started the March for Life that has grown to be a tremendous movement in the Right to Life movement. I met her once here in Newburgh, went to one of her lectures, listened to her. She never married. She was devoutly a Christian. She never brought so much that into her movement, except she was a Christian, you knew it. But she tried to work with everyone who would agree that we must stop this insanity. Nellie Gray devoted her life to this. She graduated from high school and went into the military. And she served in the military. And after she got out, she went to Washington, began to work for the government, decided she needed a college degree and she worked for it. After that, she thought she needed another degree. She went to law school at night and got another one. And then she quit the government and went full time trying to stop the insanity. Now, her obituary appeared in the Washington Post and the New York Times and in many high places. Hardly any of them mentioned that she was a Christian and almost always as a kind of pest. But let me tell you, she has done more to reduce Death in this country and to raise the quality of life than any politician in Washington. Life, it's most precious in God's sight. It's a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. The Lord gives us life from the beginning to the end. I quote at the funeral of God's saints, blessed are those who die in the Lord. And I hope you will learn to appreciate more and more how precious life is in the sight of God and how brief it is as well. And let you be one of those who pray and protect an advocate. For life in the womb and for life at the end, and for those who appear to experience a low quality of life. I have never and this is my part I have never voted for a politician who wasn't pro-life. You say, "Pastor, that's a single-issue voter. Well, there, there, there might be some times when I don't have a choice if I vote. But I'll tell you, if there had been some single-issue voters in Germany in the 1930s or in Italy in the 1930s, we may not have had the rise of Nazism and fascism. Amen.